Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. As we continue our Genesis series with Dr. John Newfeld, let's listen to today's message entitled, God Will Not Desert His People, from our study in Genesis chapter 5, verse 25 to chapter 6, verse 8. seems to me that God's people are always in danger. Right now, Christians around the world are imprisoned and tortured and killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Here are the world's worst persecutors. Number one, North Korea, where 50 to 70,000 Christians are right now in labor camps and many have died. Second, Somalia, with no functioning government, Islamic terrorists are targeting Christians. Third, Iraq, where Christians are persecuted, killed, and driven out of the country. Fourth, Syria, where the Islamic State and others are targeting and beheading Christians. Fifth, Afghanistan, where the Taliban has targeted Christians. Sixth, Northern Sudan, with its strong apostasy laws forbidding Christianity. And seventh, Iran, where any ethnic Persian who is a Christian is automatically arrested and sent into prison. The list goes on and on to include many other countries. You know, years ago, Michael Horowitz, who was then the senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, wrote in the Wall Street Journal that the evidence of a growing large-scale persecution of evangelicals and Christian converts is overwhelming and is eerily parallel to those acts committed by Adolf Hitler against the Jews. We're living in a frightening day. The Middle East is being cleansed of Christians. Now, given this reality, it might strike you as strange that I've entitled my sermon, God will not desert his people, but he will not. I believe you and I should be praying for the persecuted church. And let me add, this is the point of today's message. God will never allow his people to be extinguished. Well, let's read Genesis 5, 26 to 32. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You know, the narrative of the godly descendants of Seth finally take us to the narrative of Noah. You know, what's of interest to the Bible reader is that with the birth of Noah, the hope that this might be the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15 is once more renewed. Perhaps this one is the one who will crush the head of the serpent and finally usher in the end of the age of sin and death. But as we have seen in our study, that day is still yet to come. And then as we come to Genesis chapter 6, the narrative of remembering the godly line of Seth suddenly seems to come to an abrupt halt. Let's read Genesis 6, 1 to 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. 
Now, before we connect these verses to the wider narrative of Genesis, we need to acknowledge that verse 2 is a hotly debated passage in the Bible. Who are the daughters of men and who are the sons of God? There are at least three plausible interpretations of this passage. One interpretation says that the sons of God are in fact ancient kings, and the daughters of men are the women they took into their harems. Those who hold this interpretation would say that ancient kings often considered themselves to be the sons of the gods, and so to call them the sons of God would not seem unusual. You know, but this interpretation, while it's plausible, does lead one to wonder. Would the Bible call a pagan king a son of God? Now, it might be argued that the Bible is simply recording what they were called and not necessarily making a comment on that title. Now, I do suppose that's possible, but in no other place in the Bible is a pagan king ever called a son of God. But there's another reason why this interpretation seems unlikely. Why would the harems of pagan kings lead to a judgment of the whole world, I mean the universal flood that is to follow? After all, Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines, and it never led to this kind of a judgment. And then again, why would God wipe out all of mankind for the sins of kings? No, I think this interpretation probably does not fit this context well. A second interpretation is that the sons of God are in fact fallen angels, and the daughters of men are human women. The idea behind this theory is that demons had children with women, and that the children were half-human and half-demons, and that these half-human, half-demons became known as the Nephilim of verse 4. The idea is that the presence of these people corrupted the entire human race so that they would have to be destroyed. Now, again, I personally reject this idea for a number of reasons. First of all, it is true that angels are sometimes called the sons of God. There are three such occurrences, and they are all found in the book of Job. But the book of Exodus calls Israel a son of God. I'm reading from Exodus 4, verses 22 to 23, where it says, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And the book of Deuteronomy and Psalms and the book of Hosea all call Israel God's son. Now, that doesn't mean that they are called the sons of God in the same way that Jesus is called by that title. There is a difference in the way the title is used and applied to Christ. But the point I'm trying to make is simply this. Only that son of God can refer to God's chosen people. Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And the point I'm trying to make is that the term sons of God does not necessarily refer to angels at all. In fact, in most occurrences in the Old Testament, it refers to the people of God. Now, secondly, and I think this is the clincher, Jesus taught that the angels are not given in marriage. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it teaches us that angels are ministering spirits and winds and flames of fire. The book of Hebrews teaches the distinction between angels and flesh and blood. So, for my purpose, I can't imagine that demons can have children with women. And I mean, if that were so, what would prevent them from doing so today? And if that were so, how could we say that every man, woman, and child is made in the image of God? Now, I think this theory, although it has been held by some good Bible teachers, seems, in my view, too far-fetched and too open to wild speculation. 
And that then leads to a third interpretation, an interpretation that has been held most widely in the Christian church. This interpretation holds that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of men are the descendants of Cain. You remember that after Cain killed Abel, two different civilizations were formed, the line of Cain, who is the murderer, and the line of Seth, who is the man of God. In the course of time, the line of Seth and the line of Cain intermarried so that the godly line, or the distinction between the godly line and the ungodly line, was completely wiped out. But if that's right, that leads to an obvious question. Why would the godly line of Seth and the wicked line of Cain intermarry at all? Would not the godly line know that lack of reverence for the one true and living God would be corrosive to their future? What could be the answer for that? Now, in order to answer that, let's turn to verse 4. Remember that it said the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, that is, when intermarriage began to occur. Furthermore, verse 4 tells us that the Nephilim were the heroes of old and the men of renown. So, who then are the Nephilim and why does this comment matter? Let's see if we can attempt an explanation. In the book of Numbers, a long time after the events described here in Genesis 6, while Israel is encamped in a place called Kadesh Barnea, Moses sent out 12 spies to spy out the promised land. They return and report that the land God promised them is a land flowing with milk and honey, just as God has said. But 10 of the 12 spies say that Israel should not go in to take the land because, they say, the people who live there are so powerful that they would quickly destroy Israel. And here's what happened. Numbers 13, 31 to 33. But the men who had gone up with them said, we can attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. And we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. Now, since this is the only other place in the Bible where the Nephilim are mentioned, this passage tells us exactly what happened when the world was still young. Join me as we come back. In Dr. Neufeld's introduction, we find a picture of what happens to the godly line of Seth at the beginning of chapter 6. I wonder if we've read this passage and wondered, who exactly are the sons of God and the daughters of men? Well, we're seeing the answers unfold to us here in this story. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld sheds more light on the Nephilim, their role, and how this passage contains real applications for Christians today. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we believe teaching is critical for God's people. And your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss a day. So we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and your convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video. And you can subscribe to our ministry podcast, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. All the details to be found at backtothebible.ca. Our desire is to provide Bible teaching you can trust to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support these Bible teaching efforts, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
Now I can hear the question. Are you saying that the Nephilim survived the flood and lived in the land of Canaan at the time of Moses and Joshua? Well, of course not. They didn't. Everyone except Noah and his family were drowned in the flood. But remember that the Genesis text was first written down by Moses, and he would have taught Israel about these events while they were living in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. They would have heard the stories of the Nephilim, great ancient warriors who ruled the world before the flood. Now, when the 12 spies saw the size of the Canaanites, they said, you know, those guys look just like the Nephilim Moses taught us about. They're giants. They will destroy us just like the Nephilim of old destroyed the godly line of Seth. I think that's the explanation. The title Nephilim most likely became a kind of symbol for tall warriors that were undefeatable, kind of like calling people a race of supermen. So who were the Nephilim of Genesis 5-4? They were probably great warriors who lived at a time when ungodly people were persecuting and killing the godly line of Seth. Their presence in the world and the great danger they caused most likely inspired the line of Seth to form political alliances through marriages with ancient warlords. So why was the godly line almost extinguished? It must not have been because of persecution alone, but I think because of a panic-driven mentality in which the godly line tried to manage a growing world crisis. It was an attempt for the line of Seth to survive. But it didn't accomplish that objective. What this attempt did, however, was extinguish the memory of godliness from the earth. So then what does this passage teach us? I think it teaches us that the world can become and is often a dangerous place for the people of God. And that's due to a number of factors. First of all, Satan hates God's people. In Genesis 3.15, God told Satan that he would put enmity between him and the woman. So Satan wants to destroy you if you love Christ. He wants to incite others to hate you. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's why God's people are being persecuted. You have an enemy in the unseen realm who hates you with a murderous hatred. It began when Cain killed Abel. It carried on when King Herod killed all the boys of Bethlehem so he might kill the Christ. And it continues to this very day. See, a second reason why this world is a dangerous place for believers is because we are the children of light. Jesus put it this way in John 3, 19 to 20. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And then here's a third reason the world is a dangerous place. Our kingdom, as Jesus said, is not of this world. Christians are not called upon to build earthly or worldly kingdoms. We're not called to rule countries with guns and swords. On top of that, Jesus taught us not to kill our enemies, but to love our enemies and to do good to those that hate us. We are in many ways defenseless in this world. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 10 verse 3. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a lamb go out among wolves, but if I were a betting man, I'd put all my money on the wolves. It seems like a ridiculous thing to do, to send lambs among wolves. How can we survive? The godly line decided that their only hope was in forming marriages in which their sons, as heirs to their family, would marry women who belonged to powerful families from the line of Cain. 
Then they thought they'd be safe. But in the process, even the line of Seth died in the flood. All was lost. And what is the problem with their solution of intermarriage? Well, three things. First, God has called his people to be salt and light in a world of decay and darkness. Jesus said that we are salt of the earth and light of the world. The idea behind this metaphor is that the earth is like a piece of decaying meat, and in the ancient world, salt was used as a preservative. The only thing that prevents the earth from decaying is the presence of God's people. Let me put it another way. The only thing that prevented judgment on the ancient world was the presence of the godly line. Once it was gone, there was nothing standing between the world and judgment. Let me tell you two cities, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18 tells us that God told Abraham of his plan to destroy those cities, and here's how Abraham responded. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? See, most of you know the end of that story. Abraham and God bartered. In the end, God promised Abraham that he would not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of ten righteous people. And of course, as you know, there were not ten righteous people in that place. And I think that there may be a principle here. God's people are salt and light in a world that would otherwise stand in the judgment and under the wrath of God. And that's why on the final day, Jesus will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. On the final day, the people of the world will stand exposed all alone before the judgment of God. In the meantime, we are to be the salt of the earth. And here's the second lesson. God's people must not be compromised. That's imperative. Jesus said that the salt can lose its saltiness. You know, in this passage, the road to compromise came when God's people intermarried with those who had no faith, and that frequently happens today. A young woman will fall in love with a man, but he doesn't go to church or know Christ. He just looks real good and dresses well, has great manners, is respectful, and is delightful to be around, and is genuinely romantic, only he doesn't love Christ. And she might tell herself, it's going to be okay, and we'll work things out. But that's the pathway to compromise. Now, here's the third lesson. It's possible to exhaust the patience of God. Verse 3 says, My spirit will not abide in man forever. I think that verse provides for us the key to the long lifespans up to this point. How is it possible to live for over 900 years? I think the answer is that God gave his spirit to the human race in order to preserve them in spite of sin. Yes, they would die, but God would bless them with a very long life. And it must have been an amazing thing. I mean, imagine living 900 years. Imagine living the lifespan of Methuselah. If he had lived in our era and died this year, well, he would have been born in the mid-1000s AD. That's incredible. Imagine how different life would seem. If you're 80 years old today, you'd barely have begun your life. You might be looking forward to having a family and making your mark in life. And if you're 40, well, you're just a kid. Imagine with me the wonders of this world before the flood. Imagine how little disease must have been a factor. 
Very few healthcare costs. Imagine how learning and education would have advanced. Imagine how parents with greater age and experience would have been able to train their children. I believe the ancient world before the flood would have been a wonderful world, probably more advanced than ours. Its technology, I think, would have been breathtaking. Its history and culture would have been rich. But instead of worshiping God, it becomes violent. They become evil. And even God's people succumb to this world. And God looks at it and says, If you're sold to do evil, I will limit human life to 120 years. And of course, today it's limited further. And so, you know why life is so short? It's because the human race has exhausted the patience of God. Moses said it that way in Psalm 90. He said, we pass all our days under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. And yet, as we continue to read this passage, we're going to see that God does all of this so that the godly line will never be extinguished. God will ensure that there will always be his people on this earth. The church of the living Savior will endure. People of God, take hope. John, a great message today. But you know, I was thinking about it. I've seen this movie, Noah, and I think you've seen it too, and I feel a bit ashamed actually by saying it. But it took the Noah story and it just destroyed it. But do we have a tendency to do that with a word? Again, you know, about that movie, I saw it as well, and I could hardly hold my seat down because the actual story in the Bible is so much more interesting and fascinating and riveting than that was done. And and I just feel so sad that, that an opportunity was lost to tell a story that the world desperately needs to hear. Um, and so, again, we come back to our Bible and say there's nothing that can possibly be better than actually to study the Word of God and find out what actually happened in real history and what God has done, how fascinating it is. When the godly descendants of Seth started intermarrying with those of Cain, little did they recognize the negative results of this alliance. Yet compromise and flirting with darkness is often a a common occurrence amongst our generation as well. We've learned a number of important truths about what it means to be people of God and yet live in a dark world. Perhaps you've learned something new, and I hope that you've been encouraged that even when darkness surrounds you, our God is completely dependable. You will never end up on the losing side. And of his kingdom and his people, there is no end. Join us again tomorrow as Dr. Neudfeld continues this enlightening series on the book of Genesis. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Every home depends on God's supply. Back to the Bible Canada relies upon His supply through the faithfulness of our listeners. Thank you for your gifts that allow us to make new resources to help support you in your walk with Christ, as well as sustain our Bible teaching programs. Your support makes this ministry possible. Your generosity allows us to proclaim God's truth. Our families need it. If you wish to support us in a form of a donation, please visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Or you may consider joining our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and have your contribution to this ministry recur on a monthly basis. To find out more about the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and the exclusive benefits you unlock by joining, 
Visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.